This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. This is Plato's Cave. We're going to bring you an hour of film criticism. My name is Thomas Cordwell. I am joined by Alexandra Helen Nicholas, Josh Nelson and Cerise Howard. Good evening to all. Good evening to you and hi, hi. everyone. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. We're going to do something very similar to what we did last week, which is a sort of frantic catch-up show where we try to get through all the films of note that screened during the summer break when we were, were off air that, that we feel strongly about one way or the other and want to, to, to discuss among us for your listening pleasure. So we're going to be running through a lot of the things that came out over the past month, so sort of mid-January to, to now. Uh, before we dive into that, though... We want to do a small dedication. Well, it does behoove us to acknowledge the passing of a great, the uh, Polish director, Polish-Ukrainian director, Andrzej Zawarski, who has uh, made an indelible impression upon Alex and myself, most particularly, I think, with the film Possession. And Alex, I see you bursting, fair bursting out of your skin. I'm all, to, all, all a quiver yeah. already. Um, yeah, look, Zalowski, uh, whose name I don't pronounce as beautifully as Cerise, um, is such a hugely important filmmaker to me, both as a critic and personally. Um, Possession is just unparalleled. I think it's a bit juvenile and probably unprofessional for a film critic to have a favourite movie because I'm not 12. Um, but I do and I don't care and I stand by it. It's one of, um, I mean, it's certainly one of Ajani's best films. It was a very early international role for a very, very young Sam Neill. But Zalewski, um suffered uh, censorship at the hands of the Polish Communist government at the time, moved, went to France, made films, moved back. Um, his latest film, Cosmos, has just been play, released in the United States just last week, I think literally the night after he passed away. Yeah, incredible. A possession. Uh, highly worth looking out for, folks. Uh, but don't play it real loud. If you have neighbours who live close by, they will call the police. That one scene of Isabella Jean, um, Ajani in the Berlin Metro is harrowing beyond compare. Unbelievable. Nothing like it. All right. Let's dive into some of the, the new releases. The Danish Girl and Cerise, you had a, a piece published by Fairfax Media about this overall break. You mm. have a, a really interesting perspective and some very strong feelings about this film. I mean, I think we may all, all, all chime in with our thoughts, but I'd love you to kick things off with The Danish Girl. Sure. So, yeah, I do have a, a very profound feelings of ambivalence towards this film, which purports to tell the tale of uh, Ina Wegener, who later in life became Lily Elba. Uh, one of the very first people to undergo gender confirmation surgery, or such as it was at the time, and we're talking about sort of 1930s or so, when a few doctors in Germany were very keen to make their name uh, at the very forefront of surgical pioneering techniques. Uh, they really, uh, I think, uh, well, the film doesn't really explore the bigger picture so much. It really hones in on a relationship between Eddie Redmayne's Lily and uh, Alicia Vikander's or her name is now is Gerda, Gerda, I think. Uh, it sugarcoats a tremendous amount of stuff that is known to have occurred in real life. Um, their, their relationship was, in fact, a very queer one from the get-go, which isn't shown in the film. Uh, just Google Gerda Wegener uh, erotica to get a sense that she actually always had rather a thing for the ladies. She had some beautiful erotic artwork out there on the net. Um, but this film is extremely problematic because it play it it, it, dis, it tells the story of a trans pioneer, uh, but cast in that role is a cisgendered, which is to say non-transgendered actor, aiming squarely for Oscar's glory. And there's every chance Eddie Redmayne will well, look, he's 
very much in the running. And, and there's just all manner of issues of authenticity that this sort of casting raises as, and industrial issues even, such that, let's say this film gets all of those Oscar uh, plaudits, um, what chance is there then of anyone ever casting an actual trans actress in a role and budgeting a film appropriately to tell a story with real authenticity? Take, for example, as I did in that Age article, uh, Tangerine, a very low-budget but extremely uh, innovative and very gritty, very real film starring a couple of trans actresses as trans sex workers, women of colour, what's more. And uh, it didn't have a show of getting an Oscar vote, even though its studios campaigned hard for it. They did their utmost. And it's a fabulous film. It's not, I don't think, a masterpiece, but, man, that authenticity wipes the floor with the Danish girls managed fopping about the place with all its prestige cinema Oscar bait uh, manoeuvres. It's, it's, de- it's bloodless and it's not to say it's not totally consonant with some of my lived experiences, but I still find it immensely frustrating. Do you think the issue is that they chose to cast a cisgendered person or the issue is that it's kind of a a, a bland by-the-numbers film regardless? Like, I I must admit, and I'm coming from that position of privilege where, you know, people who represent my background are everywhere in cinema and dominate cinema, so I don't have these same... um, Feelings, but I, I do kind of overall have this idea that an actor's job is is to act, not be literally the part. Um, so I, I'm always a little uncertain how I feel about these these kind of issues. Um, I don't know what you, how you respond when you hear people like me say things like that. Yeah, well, this is what it is problematic. These films are problematic. They can't help but be. Uh, the whole industry is problematic, and this is what's at the core. We. we People, I say, if, unless anybody out listening to this hasn't twigged, I am a trans woman myself, so this is where I'm coming from, and it, it is a, a source of frustration that our stories might never be told by people from within our community and enacted by people from within it. So well, somehow uh, big business, which is to say Hollywood, has taken uh, our stories and what it presumes to be with the best of intentions, and I do believe the filmmakers reasonably well-intentioned but it's still this is still aimed at at the academy they're looking for oscar glory here but it it still takes uh the storytelling uh beyond our means we uh, the trans community is not going to rustle up uh 50 to 100 million dollars to make a film with this sort of prestige production values that's just not going to happen anytime soon not least if if this film actually wins awards because that just reinforces the status quo you could say this feels like to me like an like an oscar level exploitation film in the context of what you said i mean that's that's what we're kind of talking it's about mining mining the lived experience of others yeah for for profit i mean it's that's 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 exploitation cinema that's what it does only it doesn't have the uh the the chutzpah to declare its hand like take doris wishman all those years ago mm. Wish, wishman wishman <laughs> uh, her incredibly exploitative uh pioneering transform let me die a woman i mean that never pretended to be anything other yeah. than Schlock. Or Edwards Glen or Glenda, Glenda is that yeah. right? Yeah. Mm. But I mean, they they weren't exactly. Um, yeah, they were never going to be vying for Oscars glory. It's a whole different world. Mm. I mean, it was still sensationalistic, and frankly, this film is 
trying to it's trying to have its cake and eat it really so and this is sensational that this happened try to imagine what it was like back then but it doesn't really give you that feeling of what it could possibly have been like to have been lily alba it's doing a weird thing where it's, it's trying to make the issues very palatable for what it perceives to be the wide general audience and again there's a part of me that thinks well you're bringing this into the mainstream that's a hell of an achievement in itself uh, look my problem with this film is it's just so 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 bland and, and tedious although i must admit yeah. I, I enjoyed actually maybe the first hour or so because I liked the relationship between the characters. I'm aware that that relationship did not reflect the real people in any real shape or form from what I've heard, but I actually quite liked the husband and wife dynamic and how they kind of talked each other through these these changing desires and, and, and feelings, but ultimately it just became a bland saccharine film. That's my problem with this film, but I do wrestle with these ideas about you know, does it deserve some credit for at least trying to bring these stories to a wider audience? I mean, is that the first step and then we can move on to actually developing better films that better reflect the people it's about? Yeah, it's as if, though, that um, the community has to undergo a period of condescension from the privileged uh, larger <laughs> yeah, community first think, in order to get there. And, that's and I think Tangerine is such an important film because this comes on the tail of... This follows Tangerine, which mm. for me, yeah, I mean, in well, a way, Tangerine this film, blows us out of the water. It does. Yeah. I mean, this film kind of didn't stand a chance next to Tangerine mm. for for a whole lot of reasons. I mean, and it is the antithesis of it in so many different ways. But there is an energy yeah. and an yeah. authenticity, and I don't just mean that in in obvious ways, but just in terms of filmmaking practice. I think that it's um, maybe part of that's just taste. One of the things I'm really fascinated with, and I'm not sure whether you guys are uh, able to answer. This so I, my understanding is that this film is actually based on a novel, on a fictional novel adaptation of a true story. Mm-hmm. So we have these sort of different levels of, of um, sort of separating this from an actual true story. I I was really fascinated. I mean, was this was this a big novel? Was this a big fictional book that this was based on? I, I don't know how well known that novel was, but those original diaries, Lily Elba's diaries, which you see her writing in the film, mm. uh, were published posthumously very soon after her death, in fact. And there's, there's always been a certain amount of contention around whether they were all her own work or whether a publisher quickly raced to get this out there because it was such a sensation. Right. Um, Uh, And it also behooves me to know, because I couldn't address this in the article I wrote, but uh, another even more, um, uh, uh, another smaller community has laid some claim to Lily Olber as actually being one of theirs, and that's the intersex community who don't really like their issues being conflated with the trans community. And there's actually a whole can of worms there as well, which I wasn't really able to address in my article and um, one I I should probably uh, at some point, at least I've mentioned it here and now, but there's actually that suggestion... That not only was she trans in a sense, in a societal sense, but she may actually have been born with ambiguous genitalia and belonging then to another whole community who have their own concerns and their own uh, wish for accurate representation. Just to clarify that, the film is based on a fictionalised novel of that of that yeah. true story. So, yeah, it's several steps removed from what from what actually happened. Sorry, that's one of the best pieces of film writing I've come across this year. Well, I think that, 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 yeah, these are really important things to discuss. I mean, similar conversations happen amongst the, um, the disabled community yeah. as well. Um, and again, Eddie Redmayne was the centre of one of these discussions this time last year with the theory of everything. Yeah, which he won an Oscar for. Which he won an Oscar and for. And I think it was yeah. about this time last year that Cerise let rip on another Eddie Redmayne film, which was my first introduction to the actor shall we mention Jupiter that Jupiter ascending. ascending yeah uh, yeah look I, 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 I can't let's not let that one go yeah good dreadful. let's move on to a film that I think we're going to be a lot more positive and excited about for extremely good reason and that's Spotlight 
Josh, yeah. do you want to talk us into this one? Yeah, look, I think Spotlight, for me, harks back to the 1970s style of filmmaking, particularly the <laughs> films about investigative journalism yeah. in very much the mould. For me, at least, it reminded me of All the President's Men. It's a film that largely takes place in offices. It's just journos doing good old-fashioned research pre-sort of internet days. And I just found this absolutely captivating. And for me, it's really, it's the script and the performances that drive this film and make it so captivating in spite of what could have been very dry subject matter. So it's basically about a group of journalists investigating the institutionalised abuse of the Catholic Church in uh, Boston at the time. And of course, it opens up to far broader and as we know now, global uh, issues. And of course, this is not something that's Disappeared from the time. This is if you've paid attention up, to the media. Pick up the newspaper today. Pick up the Herald Sun today. Cardinal Pell. I Absolutely. won't come home. And in fact, the film actually finishes uh, with a um, post-credit scene involving listing off a number of parishes and churches. And there's a whole lot of Australian Wagga, ch- Toowoomba, yeah, named Ballarat. within the kind of the shame file list. I, I, look, I just th- I thought this was an absolutely captivating film, moving but also very smart and, and not sensationalist at all. What I think really works in this film is the focus is on the investigation, how they worked as a newspaper team and it's only set like 15 years ago and it's incredible to see how much has changed with the way we communicate and, and, and research now. I mean, you sort of wonder if this kind of reportage would even happen today, certainly not in the way that these reporters went out and, and had, had to do it. it. It's incredible how much some of their techniques feel so dated by how fast the media is. And I don't think it's a good thing either. Um, you know, it's so impressive, the journalism you see in this film. So what I really like is the commitment of these people to find the truth against really terrible odds because the wider community were not happy with this investigation happening. And again, today we've already seen there's a backlash in some of the conservative media about the fact this is even being looked into, saying, how dare you make these assumptions? We saw this in the film Mia Maxima Culpa as well about the Catholic Church abuse, that a lot of the community just don't want to hear this. It's such horrible for them to hear that they, they deny its existence and they're very angry at people trying to expose it. So this film shows us this journalism and I think it really has a lot of restraint in the emotional impact of the horribleness and the severity of these crimes. It, 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 may, it, it lets us feel it, but it holds it off until the end. The, even then, it's very strategic how it gives us that, those moments. I mean, Mark Ruffalo in particular has... And it, it kind of is the Academy Award-winning speech scene... But it's so damn good, I, I will let that pass. Like, he's an actor I've loved from day one, and he just articulates the rage and the betrayal and, and even the sorrow. And I like the fact this film incorporates the idea that a lot of these people were Catholic or, or lapsed Catholic, and they're really wrestling with their own conscience about how am I part of this institution that's also responsible for these crimes? Would- Such an impressive adult film. I would definitely pick up on that. I I consider myself a kind of recovering Catholic or a biological Catholic. I I was raised in a Catholic family, went to Catholic schools. Um, When I saw Spotlight, I I just had a run of really bad luck with films. I'd just seen a bunch of films that I really didn't like. And Spotlight, I was a bit eh about. I'd heard good things about it, but I was really expecting just something that would go through the motions. And um, I certainly wasn't prepared, prepared for a film as sensitive and as well, just the nuance in this film and the delicacy with which it acknowledges so many different perspectives just in such a, a very, very gentle touch to it. It's, it really just blew me away. There's a scene, and I, I don't think these are spoilers, but one of the um, journalist's grandmother is, is a practising Catholic, and when she discovers what's going on, her response is just one of the most, hmm. just one of the most powerful things I've seen in film for that a really a long time. beautiful scene. Really yeah. understated. Another scene, Michael, um, Michael Keaton... Keaton 
says to a school friend that he went to a Catholic school with, he talks about luck. He says, we were just lucky that this didn't happen to us. I've had those conversations. I mean, these are these really were moments that hit me. I think probably the scene that affected me the most because it is something that I'd not really thought about and I believe it was Mark Ruffalo who says, I always, you know, I'm not Catholic anymore. I was raised Catholic, but I always assumed I could go back if I wanted hmm. and that's not possible hmm. anymore. And that was like that was like a slap in the face for me. I mean, so much of this rhetoric that you're talking about, Thomas, about, you know, the kind of conservative response that, you know, the, 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 the word that keeps coming up just on social media and in, in public discourse is that it's a witch hunt and that the... the, the the diabolical irony of using that word it's like do you know what the witch hunts were how about how about you read up on that history before you start throwing that term around you know like just just crazy stuff there is no going back and i think this film really articulates that and i think another thing that really needs to be acknowledged because it's so central and it's something that i didn't think the film would be capable of doing was its incredible incredible treatment of the victims themselves in that it gives them enough time to be the centre of the film, but they are never exploited. It doesn't overcook it. It's not a melodrama. It's not trauma farming. It was just so perfectly balanced. I mean, this is this is like the the mathematics, the emotional mathematics in this film really blew me away. And it felt so authentic. Those sequences that played almost like actual sort of verite interviews. And, I, and for a moment, I, I was caught off guard thinking: Is are, are these actual interviews mm-hmm. with victims that they've somehow integrated into the film? It's, yeah, it's a terrific film, really rigorous. Um, it's a classic procedural, but it it keeps it really focused on the human uh, side of things, including the journalist, but very much uh, everyone who's... Uh, the more their investigation opens the city up, the more we get to get a sense of how, how the city as a whole... Uh, is is affected by this and and how so much of it is uh, complicit in trying to smother the whole thing even uh, aware of the the horror and sometimes even the magnitude of it and how in the legal system locally uh, City Hall does its utmost to uh, just keep the peace because it's our Boston and we love this place and if this gets out there Boston is ruined Boston is over and you get that sense that just no one everyone is accepting that it's there but also desperately is in denial and it's it's powerful it's um, a really really terrific film Three Triple R of all the films we've been discussing these past two weeks, Room is the one I'm very much... It, this is the one I'm kind of in love with, very much obsessed with. This It's a film I've seen a couple of times. I've read the novel. I think it's an astonishing work. It's a new film by Lenny Abrahamson, who um, is an Irish director who I've really been enjoying his work over the years. He did Frank a couple of years ago, which we covered on this show, and before that he did a really strong film called What Richard Did, which is available on home entertainment in Australia. It's based on a novel. The novelist herself wrote the film script it's and there's been a lot of debate about how much you mean to talk about this film in the context of a review because the second half is dramatically different to the first half uh but i'm just going to assume people have either aware of the film by now it's all there in the marketing the trailers and the marketing spell it out very explicitly for you what happens to the the film's detriment i thought actually the trailer let's avoid giving it away because i saw the film not knowing how it was going to evolve Mm -hmm. and that created an enormous amount of tension and excitement and you know white knuckled heart in the throat type stuff so yeah let's not do that but it's about it's from the perspective of a five-year-old boy who has lived his entire life in a room and we discover that he was born in that room to his mother who's been kept prison there for seven years and she's been kept prison there by an abusive man simply known as old nick who arrives every night at the same time to, to to rape her 
Um, and I mean, she has a she has a routine now. It's been happening for so long. There is a routine to it, which involves putting the boy to bed at a certain time. So he, which is which is a cupboard with a closed door, so he doesn't have to witness what happens. So it's a film about surviving abuse. It's a film about the enormous resilience of, of children, and it's a film about the bond between a mother and child. And that's what moved me the most: just how incredibly powerful this 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 family dynamic is under awful, awful situations. I mean, think of the think of life is beautiful. It kind of is doing a similar thing, but in a very different way. It's about a parent trying to shield their child from the horrors of reality through through fictional stories. And what's happening in Room is we're at the point now where the mother played splendidly by Brie Larson is slowly informing her son what is going on to try to elicit his help with this situation um, th- this film could have been so grim if it wanted to be, I mean describing it it sounds, it sounds awful, I know if you haven't seen it but um, the, the film has that right balance between letting you know the severity of the situation but also holding back the real nastiness of the situation and I think that's because it is mostly from the perspective of, of the boy it has, you know, the, the climactic scene is in the middle of the film which is highly highly unusual but it, it works so the film has these two very distinctive halves which are both very powerful in their own right yeah look maybe let's just deal with the issue of the trailer without describing what happens in the trailer i normally avoid trailers and unfortunately i'd seen this and it's one of those ones which basically charts out the entire chronology of the film pretty much from start to finish mm-hmm. and i so I, I went in expecting something else and then i didn't get it but i was still captivated and i think i've actually begun to appreciate the film more and more the further i've gotten away from seeing the film just because i can you know that sense of critical distance and being able to look back structurally in terms of what lenny abramson has done and i think the, the notion of the dividing the two halves in this film is really fascinating because it's not a typical film in, in a number of ways it's certainly not a three-act classical structure and i think that's what lends this film it's its point of distinction is it's not a genre film it's not the film is not really um dealing with the the what has led this woman and her child to be in this room it's not a whodunit it's not a will they escape and not really giving anything away it avoids those genre tropes and focuses on the kind of consequences emotional and physical of being put in this situation in the same way that Abrahamson deals with consequences in what Richard did. It's a film really dealing with a singular act or in this case quite a, you know, a key event a life-changing event and how does someone or how can anyone really deal with this and I think you nailed it Thomas when you talked about this being from the perspective of the child and the wrestling between the mother-son relationship of a child who's now reached a certain age where the fantasy and the fairy tale and the illusion she's constructed around room in order to make this traumatic event palatable suddenly has to confront the reality of if we don't start to deal with this in a more sophisticated manner, we're never going to get out of here. And I thought that was such a fascinating conflict at the at the, the corner, at the centre of this film. And it's what makes this a, a really potent film dramatically. I just want to give another shout-out to Brie Larson. I've been... She's been on my radar since I saw her in Short Term 12, in which she was remarkable. And again, she's a performer who just disappears into character. She doesn't seem to carry star persona. She doesn't look like a Hollywood starlet. She doesn't fit that typical mould that we... I think see often in female in in, in female performers, particularly in, in mainstream Hollywood, and I think she is absolutely remarkable in the way in which she just disappears and owns this character. I couldn't agree with you more. She's very quickly become one of my favourite contemporary actors. She began as a child actor, well, a teen actor anyway, and she's had small roles and stuff for a long time. And I think short term. 12 was possibly her first lead role and lots of TV and but she knocks it out of the park in this a beautiful performance uh, room is on general release through roadshow films 
We're going to turn our attention now to Steve Jobs, the latest Danny Boyle film. It was almost the latest David Fincher film, written by Aaron Sorkin. It's the fictionalised account of Steve Jobs, the, 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 the mastermind guru genius loved and loathed behind Apple. I think what's remarkable about this film is how it... We often talk about how we dislike conventional biopics. This is a highly unconventional biopic. It tells his life story through three incidents, completely fictionalised, backstage, about to launch a new product. He meets the same group of people in each third of the film and and these interactions with colleagues and, and family kind of give you an impression of who this man is. I was really impressed by, by how well this film worked and how well it worked being so overtly a fictionalised version and that way gave us, I think, a really strong sense of truth. He's highly unlikable. Uh, <laughs> Michael Fassbender's... Uh, look, we expect the goods from Fassbender. Mm. Uh, but it's, uh, <laughs> still, he has to wrap his... As everyone in this cast has, he has to wrap his mouth around Aaron Sorkin's dialogue, which is rapid fire. It's a sort of screwball comedy pace. This is no comedy. There's a couple of funny lines in there in spite of itself, but it's... Uh, it is Hawksian, though, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. It's incredibly yeah. rapid and articulate and improbable and on the whole quite entertaining but um uh, i certainly don't imagine this film came with any endorsement from apple itself and jobs the cult of steve jobs uh yeah he's uh, just an awful human being and the the worst family type person imaginable um does awful things by uh an ex-partner of his and the child that he may or may not have made with her and is incredibly rude to the other Steve behind Apple's early days, Steve Wozniak, played remarkably well by Seth Rogen. He's actually quite a revelation. I'd forgotten he could do serious, uh, that he's not necessarily just some big goofball, but that he actually can bring some genuine pathos to to a role where he's... Feel really feel for the poor little nerdy guy that is that helped build these things in a garage once all those years ago, and and who argued and actually fought and even perhaps won a battle with Steve Jobs to get a few extra ports squeezed into the side of this early Apple thing so it could be customised because that was the way ahead. Jobs wasn't always right. Could he ever concede it? Uh, that's part of what the drama in this film is all about over its three episodes. This film, to me, I I didn't realise until I was about half an hour into this that I really really have zero interest in 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 the cult of steve jobs i'm a writer i have a mac laptop i was ready to throw it in the bin i just thought i i, I just have no it was one of those um emperor wears no clothes moment. i mean not, i just never thought about the guy like i i had no investment in the guy that that had something to do with the computer that i use a, a large amount of time every day and i just i suffered through this i just suffered through it i think that it had some great performances in it um seth rogan Catherine waterston i think was um really great i'm i'm really she's somebody who's really on my radar at the moment um and I think she puts in. There's lots of you know lots of Oscar-nominated performances in this, and it's an Oscar-nominated film, and it just drove me spare <laughs> because it felt that it was pre- preaching to the converted. Um, it, I mean, maybe it was just I, I just felt really excluded from what this film was talking about and what it was trying to do. I thought absolutely zero connection zero care factor I, I, ju- I just flatlined see i'm not interested at all in the story either i just i, I thought i'd be bored stupid going to this film but i just like the storytelling mode it, I, it, it felt I like a backstage sorkin, musical sorkin I, I find is a, i mean I, he's just a frat boy too far for me 
Um, I don't I don't like his. I mean, I think that there is that Hawksian thing, but I think that there's just something about his dialogue that really rubs me up the wrong way. And Danny Boyle, I mean, what? How, where do we even begin with Danny Boyle? A very good director, also a very bad director. I mean, it's such a fractured. I didn't realise that this was Boyle until after I'd seen the film. There was nothing in this that marked it as a Danny Boyle project. And that me. that for me was it was a plus. I went in expecting, I guess. A typical biopic, so I went in with pretty low expectations. That's no secret. I'm not a big fan of the biopic genre, in, you know, generally speaking. And the structure, and apart from some sort of Sorkin sentimentality, which kind of creeps in towards the end, I found this a really interesting structure. And it, it reminded me a lot of Birdman, which I know you were a fan of as well. But the fact that it's you know it's really trying to, I think Sorkin's script is trying to debunk or demythologize the the figure of Steve Jobs. And each three of these segments in the film are surround or you know surround this idea of the performance, the onstage sort of sermon or seminar. And we never see any of them. Everything happens backstage. And I thought that was a an intuitive structure in which to explore this idea of this figure as a performance to try and strip strip away some levels. And I think for the most part, it's a quite a balanced depiction yes he's a prick he's a kind of megalomaniac but there's also i think at moments where we start to see beyond that in in the film so i think on the whole i was actually surprisingly won over by this and I, it's worth pointing out given that seth rogan has been a, a bone of contention between thomas and i for quite some time we finally have agreed on a seth rogan film yeah i really loved him in this <laughs> yes. i think yeah, he's, 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 he's really he's, good in this and he has one of the best lines and i'm paraphrasing now but he says something you know you can be decent and also still be a genius so i think that that kind of nails possibly the point of uh, the film steve jobs we're going to take a look at anomalisa now this is the new film by charlie kaufman with animator duke johnson it was originally based on a radio play i believe and the only way to translate it into film uh, is to do it as a stop motion puppet animation uh, mainly because of the very unique way voice is used in the film it wouldn't have worked with live actors so they've used these these very lifelike yet also very distancing puppets this is a curious film what did you all think alex i um so the, the gimmick of this film, I mean, the, the film follows um, David Thewlis's character, who's a self-help speaker who loses his zing and he gets it back when he meets Lisa, who's voiced by Jennifer Jason Lee. This notion of voicing, I think, is, is obviously quite important because the gimmick is, is that he's got a condition where everyone has the same voice, men and women, and she stands out because she's the only person whose voice is different. A lot of people love this film. I thought it was garbage, just sad, man, tears. I'm out. Mic drop. <laughs> Right. I actually... Can I, no, I, I, oh, I just... I kind of saw this was going to be the reaction this film would have, and I... <laughs> no, because... I don't know, because I, I know there are a lot of films about sad, middle-aged men, but I, I think this is far from, say, something Alexander Payne would do, and, and I think that although we may get a glut of these kind of films, it doesn't mean that we should disregard the good ones, and I, I do believe this is a good one. And I, the first time I, I like saw Alexander it, Payne, sorry, Thomas. Oh, well, no, but he, he often gets lumped in. So I'm, I'm not saying I agree with that either, but he often... There was, there was a phase where he was extraordinarily unpopular yeah, no, and everyone was giving him the boot. Yeah, that's I feel like Alan Sor- Aaron Sorkin, actually. Um, the, the, these guys go through phases of everyone loving them and everyone hating them. Um, anomaly, sir, I wasn't too sure the first time I saw it, and I did have that impulse about what, why, am I, why should I care about this sad, fairly unlikable middle-aged guy? And it really stayed with me, and I couldn't shake this film. And I went to see it again, and it really moved me. It had a really big effect. And I think the, the importance is it really does capture this sort of existential melancholia, and by no means does it ever make you really sympathise with him or, or his decisions. I mean, he's, he's a fun 
fundamentally dislikable person, and the film makes that really, really clear. Um, I mean, Kaufman does this kind of existential kind of despair thing over and over again and, and maybe it's wearing a little thin but this film on the second viewing really got into the pores of my very my very soul. I think it's that idea that I mean that it is a gimmick and it either hooks you or it doesn't and mm. I think if it hooks you if it works for you and it's quite brazen I mean it's a really brazen concept so mm. I, I you know I, I credit him for that it just didn't hook me. The, uh, the, they are uncanny creatures They're these puppet people within this film uh, once or twice the the mask sort of droops or even comes off once or a really unsettling imagery they they do look very lifelike uh, there is uh, one of the saddest sex scenes I think I've ever seen is in this film. It's, uh, it's an amazing scene, though, isn't it? Well, it's, it's very... <laughs> you like that yeah. kind of thing, Tom. <laughs> it's not personally how I would like to go about it. <laughs> oh, boy. No, but it's, it's such a raw and frank, awkward scene that was completely constructed to, yes, you know, it's, it's to not, the frame. It's not Team America. It's not Team America. Six. No, no there, is, there is something in here about the human condition and how wretched <laughs> it can be uh, at its most thwarted and... Uh, uh, and futile, and there's. But uh, I, I, I actually struggled to like this film too. I sort of admire aspects of it, but now and again, it felt like it was just phoning in tropes from, uh, let's say, Terry Gilliam's Brazil, and trying to hit at that Kafkaesque quality that Gilliam nailed because he has a much. A richer sense of the absurd, I think, or at least a much more fun sense of the absurd. Dark and bleak, but still joyous. I think that's a, that's a fair comment. Yeah, yep. and this this is just grim, grim, grim. And when this really does go into that Gilliam-esque, uh, Gilliam light sort of sequence, where somehow find themselves in the the bowels of this hotel, it's it just doesn't work at all for me. But I, I still went away with this film feeling left left it feeling kind of just a bit queasy, just a. There's something there that's that's human. It's not human. It's it's relatable, but it's also not. Um, it just it just gave me the heebie-jeebies a bit. I kind of respect that, at least. Yeah, I found this film incredibly uncomfortable to watch, and for the first half an hour, when it was doing the social realist drama of the middle-aged man in crisis i was i was kind of fence sitting thinking where are you going with this are we meant to be on board are we meant to be identifying with this character and then when it starts to i think develop a critical lens on his character when when he meets lisa and then it becomes really really uncomfortable i think that sex scene and what leads up to it the four so from foreplay is one of the most uncomfortable scenes i've watched in a long time particularly in an animated context and i think i struggled to get into the film in, in that sense. I certainly didn't enjoy the experience of watching the film, but I think it was doing something different. I think it was trying to not just rehash the same male crisis tropes, but try and at least shine a light on it. Where I think the film comes unstuck, and poor Jennifer Jason Lee is the, the victim for the second time this year in a, in a fairly nasty man-type um, narrative, is the end. And I'm not sure how I feel about the end. I've been pondering it since I saw this film last week, and I think it lends itself to two very divergent interpretations in terms of the resolution of the, the Lisa character and also the male character and this notion of automatons and male fetishizations of female and reducing everyone to the kind of the, well, I was going to say banal voice, except for the fact it's freaking Tom Newman. It's, this is um, Michael Mann's Francis Dollarhide, which I did not pick up at all until the very end in the credits roll. Three, triple R. 
look, last but not least, here in Plato's Cave at the final of our two catch-up shows, we're going to take a look at Brooklyn, an adaptation by an adaptation of the novel by Irish author Colin Tobin. I hope I got that Tobin. right. Tobin. Tobin, thank you. Um, this is a, a story about an immigrant. It's an Im- immigration story, specifically uh, just after World War Two. It looks at the experience of Irish people leaving Ireland, where there weren't a lot of opportunities, going to New York, specifically Brooklyn, famous for its ethnic diversity because of all the uh, immigration that happened there, not just Irish but also Jewish and, and Italian. The Italian experience is certainly touched upon in the, in the film as well and it follows this story of this, 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 this remarkable girl who hasn't had a lot of world experience but she's so kind of smart and capable and brave she finds her way with aplomb but deals with things like homesickness and uncertainty about, about love and, and where home is. On one level, it's a romance film that doesn't suck, which is incredible. The romance genre... <laughs> that should be the tag. Romance, <laughs> romance film that doesn't on the suck. Poster. Well, the romance genre just has, has taken a beating mm. in the last it, few decades, it really. It suck. Yeah. yeah. But I think it is also a story about that experience of that generation of people coming to America at a time where America was an enormously exciting place and the opportunities were, were real. I just absolutely fell in love with this film. Josh, I'm just dying to hear your Irish accent as you address becoming a blubbery mess watching this not once, perhaps, but twice at Uh, least. I will be watching this again when I recover. The trauma is about six months old and and my T-shirt is still damp from all all the crying. I saw it with my Irish partner and maybe that sort of tapped into it, leading into the Christmas homesickness which Thomas just described. Look, what I I think I think I said when I saw this film initially was it had no right being as good as it is, and it is an extraordinary <laughs> film. And it, it, it that does... should be the other tagline. <laughs> um, look, I, I think it's held together by a, a really remarkable script by Nick Hornby. It's that guy, the high, high fidelity, fidelity guy. guy. Nick Hornby, yeah. yeah. Um, Who's mainly adapted female-centric novels to, to film. His film scripts are things like An Education and something else remarkable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I think he, he nails the humour, and this is what... This film balances so well that John, uh, under the direction of John Crowley, an Irish director who's also worked a lot in, in theatre, it, fi- it strikes a balance between pathos, between humour, um, it never overdoes the sentimentality. And it's not just a simple immigrant's tale. What I think really drew me into the tale of Brooklyn is it's about a girl who, who goes overseas and then she comes home for a certain reason and then finds that home isn't really like it used to be and she finds she finds herself caught between two worlds and almost homeless in a sense and i found the way in which it explores the someone caught between two worlds was was utterly engrossing and, and kind of hard not to em- empathize with well there's all that but then there's also the the real um bonus of uh, julie walters in fine form as the matriarch of a, a home for wayward irish girls who've come all the way uh and uh, effectively orphaned but for her and um a priest who uh in a change from any other film that we've discussed this evening is actually a good priest and uh, and it's there's so much charm in this film and it doesn't it doesn't try too hard to to earn that it to to win it to win its audience over it's extremely winsome in and of its own right and it is moving there's there's not just one love one great love but two and oh i it, it's it, i think it's relatable i think we've all felt that particular yearning i would wager folks of age beyond 20-ish, 
like we all just about are. And it's just, uh, it's, it's quite exquisite. Saoirse Ronan is, she can almost do no wrong, even when she's in a, a dud film. And she, I think she, you know, she, The Lovely Bones wasn't great, for example, but she's still wonderful in it. She's luminous and she's just gorgeous in this film as well. So I, I hang on her every utterance, not least because she has an accent. Josh, I'd like to hear you try to mimic again. Not a chance, oh. otherwise I will find myself homeless when I try to return to my residence tonight. Brooklyn is on general release through Transmission Films and I think that's probably going to be the last of our two rapidly speeding through films catch-up shows. So next week we'll be back to our usual format of taking a more in-depth look at three films. We don't know what they are yet. There'll be heavy debate and decision-making after this show. You have been listening to Plato's Cave with myself, Thomas Cordwell, and my co-hosts Josh Nelson, Cerise Howard and Alexandra Heller-Nicholas. Good night. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.